Hello everyone and welcome to episode 14 of Zion's Finest. This is Kenny Brown. In a manner that pains my soul, I will tell you that I am not in this episode. I am sorry that I've been a little bit AWOL. I had a crazy, or like we were literally about to record. Well, actually, I guess that's not true. I had noticed the day of that I had a huge work project. I'm a lawyer, and this is just kind of the name of the game. I had a huge work project that came up, and I missed this episode recording with Ben which pains my soul because so, well, actually, I'm not going to give the preview right now. Let me just do the news real fast. Okay. The mini extravaganza came out this last week. And I'm just going to say that the content that was spoiled is absolutely amazing in terms of everything that we've got. Not just because I, it's not because of power level. It's just because there is a lot of just really interesting things that were spoiled. I am so excited for Jedi Luke. He looks like he is just going to be this very fun figure with an interesting balance in terms of his offense and defense. I, I don't know. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he plays. Vader also looks like he could be a machine. Apparently the thing with Vader is that if he doesn't wound someone on his activation, you can shovel his card back into your Shatterpoint deck. And I know that there are ways that that can be gamed to your disadvantage, but I think that can just be such a strong ability. And those are just two of the figures. They're, the Ewoks were not spoiled. Uh, oh, no, that's not true. We did get some spoiling of Ewoks. I think it was of the secondary. Um, but they're all on the Shatterpoint general channel. Everything that has been spoiled is there. So... If you haven't had a chance to check them out, you should. We've been talking about them a little bit, and hopefully we'll be, well, we obviously will be talking about them more. They also finally announced they've got new mission packs coming down the line. I cannot make out any of the text from the pictures that have been saved, but it looks awesome anyway. So the mini extravaganza came out. Everything looks awesome. Also, one thing is that I have been getting feedback on our podcast episode, both good and not bad, but constructive criticism, I guess we will say. And I just want to say for everybody that has been giving me feedback, it is all welcome. I am very glad to hear how we can improve. I think a lot of it is just based on the fact that we are amateurs and we are not, we're just not very skilled <laughs> at podcasting, which is totally fine. We love Shatterpoint and that is what we are doing to, to um, that's the whole point of what is going on here, but we want to improve. And so if you have, we say um too much, we say like too much. I say both of those things on a recurring basis and I am glad to hear you tell me so, so that I can remind myself and remind the other brothers to, uh, uh, knock those things out. Did you see how I just did that? So next, upcoming events. October 14th, coming up in a month. Holy smokes, that's going to be awesome. We are having a tournament at Demo. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think we'll probably have around 8 to 10 players. If you're in Utah, you should absolutely come out. It's going to be a premier format event, but it is going to be a very fun, approachable tournament for all of us to enjoy. We will have some custom tokens there. And I also think it is hopefully the case that the cards that we have ordered, the Dooku OB2 card, or OB1 cards, sorry, will be available and I can hand those out at the tournament. If you're going to be going to LVO, we have confirmed that it's going to be the after hours event, that it's going to be a casual event, but we still need terrain. So if you're going to LVO, let me know in the Google Doc that you can bring terrain, painted terrain, so that we can keep our counts updated. One more thing. So JK last week came up with this idea that he wanted a, an easy way to track games. So he created this Google Doc. Ah, is that the right word? I think it's a Google Form is actually the right, the right word. And there's a link to it pinned in the Shatterpoint General. And what this is, after you've played a game, you can open this Google Form and it will just ask you to list your primaries, secondaries, supporting units, whether or not you're a first player and which struggles you won. 
there's also a, more information you can give, including your Slack handle, which we would appreciate if you would do, or Discord handle if you're not on the Slack, and also the information for your opponent. And the reason why we're doing that is not so that everyone has to always remember everything your opponent ran, but so that we can filter out a little bit of duplicates. If So if JK and I played a game, I'm going to put in my list. I'm also going to put in JK's list. And if JK does the same thing, we can look at that and say, oh, it was a match, you know, and obviously, so we're not, so we're not double counting. That was an excellent point brought up in the Slack just to make sure that we're, you know, have a little bit of data integrity. This is not though about making some kind of comprehensive, what's the word, replacement for long. This is not a replacement for long shanks. Absolutely not a replacement for long shanks. In fact, the data that we're gathering can be put into long shanks. What it's for though is just meant to be a very accessible, very easy way to quickly upload the results of your game. And we don't need right now, it, it does not need to be this thing. You don't need to obsess over it or anything like that, but it has been really interesting to see as the data has been coming in. I think JK said we were probably somewhere close to, I mean, we put this out this last week and we were already at, I think probably around a hundred games. A lot of that was people uploading older games. I, I only uploaded the game for my previous week. I mean, I haven't done too many, but I mean, it's been really interesting to see what's come out. Like Grievous is the most played primary. Django is the most played secondary. And not only is the most played secondary, he is the most played secondary in the list that win, right? In terms of whoever's winning two struggles, a lot, mo most of the time they are also running Django, which doesn't surprise anyone. We think Django is too good. So, I mean, there's just a lot of really cool stuff that we're, that we're pulling from this. It's not as comprehensive as Longshanks, I think. I, I mean, I'm not actually 100% positive how you parse Longshanks, but it is not a replacement for Longshanks. I've heard uh, there's been a little bit of feedback and pushback about that. That's not what this is for. Okay, with those things out of the way, let me give you a quick preview as to what's going to be going on in this episode. So Ben Varnum is the guest on today's episode. Ben and our group go way back. Ben joined the Slack pretty early on when we were all playing IA, and Ben is a very thoughtful person. He is an Episcopalian priest in Omaha, Nebraska. He's from Kansas City, which I learned just barely. Ben and I have developed a fast friendship over the years. He is an extremely thoughtful person. He's very smart. He's went to Chicago for his divinity school, obviously, you know, take some brains to get there. He's really good at chess. And that he, he is just that form of analytical thinking. It doesn't come, I'm not gonna say it comes naturally to him, but he has honed the skills with which to deploy so that he can offer just really interesting analysis. And it's fun to, we, we talk about lots of things, but I love having the chance. It's kind of like with him and Matt, they're actually very similar in a lot of ways, but it's very interesting to watch them break down game concepts and ideas in a way that you will learn something. And not only will you learn things about you know the game that we are playing you are also going to just have a new way to think about the thing so it's so awesome I, I i wish so badly that i could have been a part of this episode but it was really good to listen and edit and i know that you are going to enjoy it we will definitely be having ben come on more in the future so with that out of the way so Ben is awesome, and I am I love him, and I am so glad that he's on this episode. What they do in this episode is they're going to talk about a few things. One is Ben went to a smaller tournament. Not small. I mean, there were eight players. So for a game in its infancy, that seems totally fine. Um, a, a local tournament, a premier format event. Ben did really well, and he's going to describe how he, how he did at the tournament. What thing that's going to come up in particular is he is going to talk about how he was able to lose struggle one and then win struggles two and three. And he has thoughts on that in terms of... 
well, how to approach that. You So you've lost struggle one, what now? Um, you know, kind of going on our theme that we talked about last week. And the other thing, kind of the main thing that is discussed here is time. The usage of time and the community of norms around time. This is why I wish I would have been a part of this podcast episode because I have so many thoughts on this. First off, the thing is, is to think about time. Time, we can think of it as a common resource in between the two players. There are 90 minutes before we hit mission critical, you know, two hours in a round or 90 minutes maybe in a round. That is time that we share. So what are the norms governing our use of that time? What constitutes slow play? How should we think about slow play? How should we parse it? They have a lot, Sam and Ben have a lot of thoughts as to how that should be done. One thing that's interesting that they talk about, which we I have never encountered, but I think is actually a really good idea for more competitive stringent events is chess clocks. Give each player half the time, run down your clock. But So we don't even need to worry about community norms. And I think that is where the norms probably would matter most in terms of the stakes are highest. So you have worlds and you do not want to have slow play. And so how do we address that? Well, we give people time clocks. Sam said that's something that they do in MCP at a big events that he's been to, which I think is just a really cool idea. I think I did see that at LVO this last year when they were all playing MCP. So, but they they talk about that. How do we how do we address this? How do we think about this? What constitutes slow play? How what are the community norms that we should be promulgating and enforcing around it? This is awesome. It's this stuff is just my jam. It is not so much if you are here thinking, oh, I need to become a better Chatterpoint player. This is much more about community growth and curation and tending our little gardens of the Shatterpoint community. But it's something that I think you will very much enjoy. I very much enjoyed listening to it. So anyway, that is it. That's the episode. I'm going to turn it over to Sam and Ben. Thanks so much. We love you all. Rate and review the Slack. Continue to give us constructive feedback. Respond to our poll question. Join the Slack. Join our discussion regarding all the events that have been spoiled with Mini Stravaganza. We love you all. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Samuel here, Samuel Sweeten. And... Uh... I have a special guest here with us today. We have Ben Varnum. Hi, guys. Yeah, Ben's one of our uh, good friends here in the, the community. He's been playing a lot of Shatterpoint, and uh, he had gone to an event recently, and he had some really interesting thoughts. So we thought we would do an episode about some of the experiences he had at this event and some interesting community-building things that uh, he experienced. Uh, is there anything you wanted to introduce about yourself, Ben? I think I can just basically say I've played war games since Imperial Assault for about eight or ten years. I've been playing a lot of Malifaux, which is, I think, a great primer game for Shatterpoint because it's very much a game about like learning the baseline of what things can do so that you know when to come off that baseline. Uh, and I think that that like came up in my tournament uh, in some things I want to talk about, like maps, opponents, stuff like that. Yeah, and I play in Omaha, Nebraska. We've got lots of local events, lots of great people around. Uh, I'm on the Slack if you want to reach out to me there and connect with us, uh, or you can find us on the main uh, AMG Discord. Um, just say, hey, I'm looking for games in Omaha area or Lincoln, Des Moines. Uh, we've got some people who travel around. So Some things we wanted to talk about. We Usually we talk about recent game summaries. I have been quite busy and have not played since recording the last episode hopefully i'll get in some games this week as we have a league starting up this weekend ben you just went to this tournament maybe for our game rundown you can tell us just a brief overview of how things went yeah sure 
Um, so we do release tournaments where basically we get eight to 12 people, they pay a buy-in fee, we buy the two release boxes, and then whoever wins gets one box, they, they choose, and then they raffle off the other. So like pretty good odds to just come win a great prize. Uh, this last event had eight players there. Uh, we, uh, we ran the event on a Friday night from about six till midnight. It's, one of the things I love about Shatterpoint is you can get a full event in in about six hours locally, which is great. Uh, you cannot do that in Malifaux. Yeah. And yeah, we just, a lot of good people, a lot of uh, players coming from MCP, other competitive games. So it's kind of fun that even with a fresh game, like th- there's a really like broad uh, player skill level. Um, and we see that already at tables. So. Uh, I guess if I were to talk about my recent games, they really were these event games. Uh, and I guess I would I would say, I think I've got like kind of three things that stood out to me about just the experience of playing an event. One was its premiere. And so like, I, I was surprised by some of the things I decided to do, putting my four premiere squads into different matchups, uh, which I'll go into some. Uh, one thing is that I actually won struggles two and three in my later two rounds, which, you know, were the more competitive tables as you go. Uh, And, you know, we've all been talking about how that's like the less likely thing to have happen. So I've got a a little bit of feedback about how that happened. Yeah. Uh, And the third thing is one one of my games had a weird thing happen with time. And I think uh, communities have different intuitions about how time should work in a competitive Shatterpoint game, like at an event. So I just want to like offer some thoughts into the beginning of having a broader community conversation about that. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, finally have a full-on premiere event with different squads. Well, let's just start at the beginning there. What did, in your squad building, what were you thinking when you were building this premiere team? Yeah, so I, um, I'm kind of signed on to the basic Zion's finest wisdom that the like, you must be this tall to ride this ride list is Vader Grievous. So I, I had Vader with OB2 and Magna Guards and Grievous with Django and B2s. Um, I, I like B2s under Grievous. I like the extra attack for... I think you said this, Sam, on one of the podcasts. Like, B2s adding a few expertise or crit damage on those five die attacks is exactly what Grievous wants to follow up with on his own activation. Uh, so th- yeah, I love them. With yeah, that. yeah. So that was my like core idea was okay. Here's my power list, um, and then either I wanted to be able to run something else totally different, and then run that twice, or what I what I thought I was going to do going into the event was run Vader with each of three other things. So the other two were Dooku over Kraken and B ones, and uh, then the Talzin box just straight up. Um, and I had, I was running that a bit cold, but I love all of the theory craft of it. I love the idea of Savage with Vader dice. Um, and I, I just thought like there's going to be some moment where uh, where Talzin's abilities just swing a struggle, right? You just move something off of a point. It never goes back there. It's card and the Shatterpoint are gone. Uh, it, yeah, it's a great ability. Yeah. Um, so my, my like walk-in thought was, okay, I'm going to run Vader Talzin first unless it, unless something tells me not to, uh, I'll be fresh. Mm-hmm. That's the new list. Like I can, I can give my like fresh cognitive load to figuring out how Talzin and the Night Sisters work. Uh, I, I was pretty sure Savage, you, you know, you point at something and then see what happens. Um, 
And then I was going to run, you know, Vader, Dooku, and ideally end on Vader, Grievous for my, like, power last round, if, if I did well in the tournament, right? If I go in and lose, who cares? I'll, I'll have fun. Um, but I want yeah. wanted to hunt the podium. Um, and instead, what happened was I sat down to my round one game. Uh, I had played the guy I was playing one time before. I, I'm new to a lot of these opponents. I'm, I'm meeting them all still. But in our last event, the game I played with this guy only went one struggle. Uh, and so I thought, okay, here's somebody who thinks a while, like this game might take some time. Uh, also the map didn't have any high elevation. It had a lot of, yeah, it had like, you know, two height, uh, range two height elevations, so about three inches high. And yeah. so I, I thought to myself, well, I don't need a lot of jumps. So Talzin's Night Sisters don't have a lot to do here. And, um, there were a lot of big open lanes between these boxes so I thought I, I want a lot of guns. I want to just stick B2s on the top of this middle objective uh, up high and just give them a full field of fire on the board. And so I went with Dooku and I went with Grievous, which was sort of the bread and butter list I'd been running until Vader came out. I thought... I, One of my favorite lists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, plays well, plays well together. Figured this is something I can run really fast. Um, and like off we went. Um, wound up winning that game. That was the one that had a time issue around it. I'll talk about that later. Uh, Hit table two, I was up against a guy named Keith. He's like my local sparring partner. I I think it's still true that Keith has not lost a game of Shatterpoint, except the two games where he and I have played in tournaments. Um, So so he's strong. He beats me every other time we play, but I happen to have sucker punched him twice at events. So for that one, I just thought like, okay, forget top table. I'm dropping Vader Grievous here. Yeah. And, and it similarly like was a table that was fairly low. There was no like what I sort of think of as elevation two or elevation three stuff. Um, just, just stuff that was sort of up one level. Yeah. So when you talk about elevation two or three, just kind of set the, the stage for um, our, our listeners. We're talking about like there's a base level and then your typical gantries, single story buildings, that's elevation one. And then elevation two are like those radio, radio towers, the high ground. Yeah, towers, I guess, right? I guess I, so there's no real agreed on language yet. I, I think of elevation yeah. two as being the two range, which really means elevation three doesn't Got make it. sense. Um, it really should be like two and four, yeah. right? If I'm doing it that way. Um, yeah. But yeah, what I, what I mean is basically like if, if the baseline is one or zero, like stuff's only coming up one, you know, two range. I, I think range. you're actually correct that, eleva- that uh, range three is exactly two elevation, two range twos. Okay. So okay. your range stick. So yeah, you can talk about, yeah, the, the third la- le- level being elevation three makes sense in that regard. But yeah, so this was another small table. And, and at an event with four tables up, I, I knew there was high terrain on the other two tables. Um, so, so deferring mm-hmm. talls in also made sense. Um, right. So, so th- this is stuff that's a little hard to visualize on a podcast outside of the space. But like, again, when you're at Premiere, you, you can walk in with a plan. But being able, like, being able to recognize this is where it's important to flip these pieces of the plan I think it's a skill we all just need to learn and be learning. Yeah. Um, got through that game with Keith. We, you know, we played a good hard match. Um, he did win struggle one and I kind of was really worried that that was going to be that event for me. Uh, but you know, kept at it, punched back. Um, I, I spent a lot of time 
beforehand, looking at the percentage charts about where objectives will flip up. Uh, I think I, mm-hmm. I I did sort of correctly figure out in that game, like, I'm not going to win struggle one. Where do people go? Um, I think having speed in units like OB2 to like just run to a point, hold it. And, and OB2 in particular is really good at holding a point by himself because... You know, if something comes in to try to get him off, you mind trick away that attack and it takes him a whole nother activation. Yeah. Um, so especially when, when you know, the RNG die can give you some luck on double points, he, he's really, he, he gets a lot more powerful later. And the fact that he, he gets better dice if you wound him kind of balances out the fact that people might try to knock him down and make his force costs go up. So um, anyway, got through that game with Keith. Um that locked me into Talzin on one of the last tables, but by then I knew I was playing on high elevation. So we had elevation two and range three elevation things there. And um, at that point, my plan had been to run Talzin with Vader just for the power and to add Savage. But as I was looking at this table, there was enough height on it that I sort of said, I, I think I want Grievous. I think I want Django. Um, there was enough shooting space for the B2s. And I knew I was up against clones, uh, you know, four, four different Galactic Republic primaries in that last uh, match. That my opponent had used all four of his primaries. He had a full full set of options, but um, I, I did not expect Anakin, who he had, because Anakin was not going to be able to move well on that map. And of the others, I thought, okay, whoever he brings, Grievous is fine in terms of damage output. Uh, you know, I, I don't need the extra power from Vader. Uh, I need the extra height, yeah. right? Um, so that was sort of the flexing I made out of my like premier. You know, my plan was Vader plus each, and then instead it became Grievous plus each, um, based on what I actually saw on tables. Yeah, I really like that idea of staying flexible and really playing to the table. My, I've been in my theory crafting for premier events. I haven't played in one yet. I'm really excited to. I've really tried to keep my options flexible instead of locking myself to build around one thing. Um, partly because I like this idea of being able to say like, hey, the terrain here isn't favorable, or I, it's just so I can have different options that I'm comfortable throwing in, um, mixing stuff up with. So I really like this idea of, you know, no, no plan survives first contact, right? That come in with a plan and it's like, okay, I need to adjust it to what's actually in front of me. And I think the terrain and how a table setup can really impact your game. So I think those are some really interesting points you said that you've played more to the terrain even than matchups. Yeah, I, I do expect matchups will broaden out more. Like... Right now, the most matchup-dependent character feels like the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, you know, everything's queuing off Force yeah. users. And, like, number one, there's a lot of Force users. But number two, the Grand Inquisitor is just not... He's not bringing enough juice for the squeeze on, on like, flexing him in for, for tech. Um, yeah, I, I think terrain really yeah. is still more determinative. I... I do think it was in my head, like when I when I saw Keith's four squads, they were all separatist lists. And I thought, like, okay, droids, more more health. I need to be able to like spike up a single attack a lot more. And then again, when I was uh, playing my final game against a player named Alex, I I sort of thought, saw a bunch of clones. I thought, okay, everything's gonna be seven or eight health, clone or Mando. Like, I can probably knock anything down with Grievous, or you know, I, I don't need the full extra strength. So. Yeah, Grievous can one-shot any of those supports even without Vader right, pretty right. easily. 
Yeah. So you were uh, talking about how uh, you had these games where you won and struggles two and three. We we had just talked about this last episode a little bit, um, but I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on how you think that happened and what some of your tips and tricks for pulling off those come from behind victories are. Yeah, and I, I mean, mostly I just want to again recommend your your guys' podcast from from the last well the last episode before we recorded this. Um, I, I've joked a lot that Matt and I, you know, have never been seen in the same room at the same time. We we really think about the game the same way. Um, and I, yeah. I love everything he had to say about it. I, I was like cheering in my car when he brought up the Monty Hall problem, right? Um, yeah. So, um, but I, I think, you know, right now, a single mission pack, uh, knowing the fundamentals is just a real advantage, right? Um knowing that either A1 or C3 are going to be at option for you to pick and select in. And so getting something that can um, reach out and get to A1 uh, in your list in Circle 2, uh, having something kind of clumped back near C3, if you're not sure if you're going to win or, or not wanting to commit all the way forward. Um, those were kind of in my mind. I, I do remember in the game versus Keith, I think my Magna Guards had nothing to do. And so I just moved them uh, kind of right to left from... C2, C3 to B2, B3, thinking I, I I know that there are spots where these things will warm up in Struggle 3, and if, if it flips over, I want that option. And then when Keith, uh, when I won Struggle 2, Keith had the card flip option, and it was either the straight line across the middle or the straight line down the middle, and all of the combat had been at B1, um, and, so, and, and then I had guys on B2 and c2 and so he had to sort of think like i don't like either of these things because of where your guys are right now um yeah so that that really helped out and and i think i i I mean without going into the weeds on a game that people can't see like pretty key was he felt locked into choosing the middle three objectives and no one was on b3 and so ob2 was able to run to b3 and basically hold like lock it down through struggle three in a way that just helped my point the points that were available to me in Struggle Three were much uh, stronger because I was able to, like, like get a guy onto that particular point faster, and it happened to be that guy that's very good at um, preventing someone from knocking him off. So yeah, that's an, so. Did you also have like an attrition advantage going into S- Struggle Three? Was that something you were thinking about too, or mostly the positioning? Yeah, it's fun. so I I play for attrition. It, it's one of my favorite play yeah. styles, and I I actually like to play very safe things. That um, I um, I, I save scummed my way through a lot of RPGs before I finally like got into XCOM and admitted my characters could die. Um, so I I like yeah. very safe builds. I like builds where things don't die. Shatterpoint is sort of a new experience for me. Where like okay, anything I send forward is gonna get wounded, right? And Mm-hmm. Um, so, so adjusting my thinking to sort of being like, what I need is an attrition where whatever gets wounded has eaten at least one attack before it does. Right. Like, like at, yeah. at this point in the development of the meta in the game, like that, that's what looks really valuable to me down the road. I think there's stuff like, you know, Padme plus Obi-Wan where like, go ahead and wound me. I'm going to drop a hunker token and come right back on the point And I still count, even though I'm wounded, like feels like a great yep. play style for that. Um, but right now, yeah, I, I sort of want to attrition win, like walk up and punch someone in the face and, and get something for nothing. Right. Like that, that's sort of the core attrition value. So all of that's preamble to say, like, 
even though that's my playstyle, I don't feel like I was up on like a wounds count in any of my games. I think it was almost always pretty even. Um, so, so that mobility advantage that you know separatists have quite a bit of. They really do. Yeah, I think that was pretty key to like locking down struggles two and three, uh, especially the the moments where you got to get them back to back. Yeah, there's this interesting idea that um, if you're, you know, you're talking about for struggle two. And if you know you're going to lose struggle one and you put guys on either A1 or C3 and you know you can get one of those, and you can control it. And then you get to go first. And if you have something like a Grievous go first, where you can just move your entire team, you can pretty easily score four points. Like pretty reasonably just kind of like swing that struggle. And at that point, you're probably in a comfortable enough spot that you can start looking towards struggle three. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, yeah. also a lot of a lot of units have like a a capacity Keith actually coined this phrase in our local group, but they have a capacity for a drive-by, right? Like Grievous can get two advances on his round, but you know, there there's no reason you can't smack somebody between the two advances, right? So uh yeah. finding ways to be maximally efficient with all of your actions um especially in a game where you can't double any particular action, right? You can't just double advance with your two AP uh, is, is really yeah. a skill. I often find myself doing that with Maul. He's an incredible drive-by figure for that, right? Where he can advance, yank somebody off a point, um, force speed, throw his lightsaber, reposition and shove somebody onto the third point. You know, it's like, He's really good at affecting multiple points in a single activation. A lot of primaries seem to be built around that, that they want to be able to be affecting multiple points, even though they're just a single character model. Yeah, for sure. Um, some of those are a little worse at that, but they make them in other ways. Like Vader is really just going to be affecting a single point, but hopefully he's murdering somebody as he does that. Right, yeah. And he's just making the rest of your team more effective. Yeah, his, his second point is a momentum. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, is that it, something that you like thought about in your list building? Like you wanted a certain amount of these drive-by characters to help you with the swings of the game? I, I don't know if I wanted a certain amount of them so much as I'm just attracted to them naturally. You know, I, okay. like I, yeah. I prefer Grievous to Dooku, even though I think Dooku probably has a higher like top speed of of being able to move his whole army around. Um, yeah, but yeah, Grievous. Like, like what he does is so, um, it, it's so straightforward while at the same time, it, it's not really telegraphed to the opponent. Um, like, like his suite of options is pretty broad. They're, they're, he'll do one or two specific things, but where he can do them is pretty broad. Um, especially when you can, you know, you can move that B2 at the start of the activation, get it into fi range five to take its shot. Um, and, and then you've got a couple of moves, one of which might include scale and a climb for Grievous. He's just got a really, um, like, it's difficult to anticipate his threat range and radius. Yeah. His range attack is really solid, too. I've never used it. Really? Yeah. No, I, I know it's there. I need to I need to learn it. I still just walk up and smack a guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's fair. I've, I find myself using it when um, I know Grievous isn't going to be one-shotting someone. He's attacking a full health Obi-Wan or something. Or, you know, like, hey, I'm not going to be one-shotting this guy. I just need to get them off the point and pin them. Yeah. And uh, he can, he, that's, that, he gets a shove and a pin first two steps. 
and it can be pretty devastating. Um, and that shoves a lot of extra movement on Grievous's big base. So, yeah, fair. So I've I've also found um, I think the 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 Dooku point is interesting of him being able to move your whole army. I think both Dooku and Grievous like kind of offer this like in many ways Grievous offers more mobility because he gets the shove at the beginning plus his follow up attack, but uh, Dooku is a much harder model to remove from points than Grievous. Like, probably the second hardest model to get off points behind Obi-Wan in the game. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Being able to turn off your opponent's shoves by paying a force to get rid of their successes, which is a lot of where his value comes from. Sorry about that Dooku tangent, but... Uh, no, that's fine. I really like him f- for that same purpose of, of Obi-Wan. Um, and I think in that, he's also really good at struggle two and three because he kind of locks down a single point. So you mentioned, you know, talking about how mobility and preparing... Are there any other things that help you, you think, win struggles two and three in these games? So I, I think you asked if I, like, try to keep a certain number of drive-by characters. And, I like, the thing I actually want to saturate across the two squads is mobility. Um, so I, I don't know that I have, like, a count so much as a gut feel, but, like... Um, you know, Night Sister Acolytes in Talzin ha- have that wonderful jump, and yeah, uh, you know, you can do it with. I mean, Mandalorians are probably more mobile, especially with the extra jump they get from secondaries. But um, I-, I want a certain amount of that in a given list, right? And I, I think I, I feel comfortable with B twos, for example, because they, they've number one, they've got an advance they can pay for. But even though they don't have height, like it's there on the other two units, right? Django's, I, yeah. I play Django under Grievous and then Grievous has scale. So I think um, when I sit down and look at my premier four squads, um, I, I want a little bit of mobility in every squad. And then I, I want to be able to pair things where at least two or three units are going to be able to move up and down or really reach out and touch something. And I'm not going to mm-hmm. sort of wind up with one one flank that's really, you know, just sort of slowly advancing. Um, and the other one kind of speeding past them. And, you know, I, I think that's where you can kind of get into trouble where a card flipping up w- will put you in a position where you happen not to have options. Yeah. Whereas if you're if you're a little bit broad across the whole board, y- you'll have something that can do it, even if it, you know, takes your Shatterpoint card or something comes out of reserve. I, I think the reserve slot is the other piece that, like, intuitively I was kind of really... Like, I, I talked a bit with some people on the Slack about how many how many activations they think a game, a competitive game lasts. Cause I, I think yeah. often it's about 12 to 14 on a side, right? I find in an, in an event, often I'm not shuffling the deck a third time. Like it's ending somewhere three, four, five flips into that, that second thing. Yep. So I, I, I mean, shuffle one, it kind of doesn't matter. It's it, it, if you reserve something or not, cause it comes back out. But in, in, in Struggle 2, I really view the reserve slot as just whoever is not going to be helpful just goes to the bench and sits there the rest of the game, right? Like, yeah. like that, is, that is what I think the reserve slot is most efficient for right now. I, you know, Obi-Wan may be the exception to that. Uh, General Obi-Wan with his um, ability to, to jump in and things. And, and maybe Lumi does some stuff with it. I've not played enough Republic. You know, the, the ability to, like, thin your deck to the cards you need... It is really powerful, and you know, I think I think just intuiting, like, okay, the Shatterpoint card has come up, I can do something with it that's worth three or four points, or it's come up, I can get a point with it, 
you know, like, okay, this is the time to shuffle it back in because it's not as useful as it needs to be are, are the yeah. kind of decision points that I think you wind up hitting with, with your order deck as you get into those later uh, later struggles. I think that, you know, that's a, a, always a good point to remember that you're not always, when you reserve something in your second shuffle, you're not always going to use them. I think for that reason, B1s can be very powerful because they kind of give you a second reserve in your second shuffle. If you don't want to use them, you just send them at the bottom and you can still reserve another poor activation in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they can have that sort of power. And you talked about Obi and Lumi. But I think that uh, learning how to manipulate the differences between your first shuffle, your second shuffle, and even your third shuffle, if you get to that point, is like a point of strength that you can, an edge you can get over your opponent. You know how to like, how long you expect the game to last and how to manipulate whether you're actually going to be using that reserve or not. Yeah, I, I think the other, the other sort of way to be aware of your, I, I think of it as like deck heat, right? Like how much, how much gas is left in the tank or how much heat is left in my, in my order activations. You know, I, I think the other place to think about that is like weighting that against how much of the struggle is left. You know, uh, because if you are, if you're at mission critical and there's 10, 15 minutes left, you're only going through a few more activations, you flip somebody up, don't know what to do with them, just pitch them, right? Um, and just get, get to a, yeah. get to a hotter card. But I think also like when you're, when you're toward the end of struggle one, like you might have, you know, grievous flip up and think, ah, like I can go kill somebody, uh, you, you know, take two points. It's going to pull it back. That's going to cause struggle one to go three or four more activations, if if the writing is on the wall, like putting Grievous in a reserve by saying like I I need that heat later, and then just letting the opponent take the struggle, but then starting with Grievous and immediately swinging hard into that, you know, like that that might be a more correct way to manage your reserve and things. Yeah, I think also is when you're winning struggle one, that's also true. Like yeah, sometimes sure. you're just gonna want to say like, hey, I'm winning. I can I'm scoring four points no matter what here, no matter who I activate. Let's reserve this Grievous so that I can have him at the beginning of Struggle 2 to respond to what my opponent does and flip over my, you know, B2s this time and, you know, just kind of have them shove somebody into a bad position this turn. Yeah. Not yeah. worry about anything else. Yeah, there, so. and, and that works the other way too, right? Of If you're winning Struggle 1, maybe cause it to go a little longer so that your opponent goes through their primaries and... and like they act and are are impactful, but not enough to like stop you winning struggle one. There's a principle in chess called Zugzwang. It's been in chess theory for generations, uh, and it, I I don't remember how it literally translates, but it basically means like give the opponent no good decisions. Okay, yeah. And you know, like sometimes, like okay, like they're going to activate their primary, but all of my forward units are wounded. Like they they can capture a point, but they can only get one or two out of their primary, and I'm still going to win the struggle in the next turn or two. You know, like let let them go ahead and burn out on a useless set of rallying, and then and then you still kind of claim that you know victory condition. Yeah, it, it's hard to kind of get into some of these things without an active game to like point to. But um, the, I, again, I think it's a lot of intuition, especially in a in an event yeah. where. I mean, we play ninety-minute rounds, and that is that is fast for the number of decision points that you've got in Shatter. Yeah, there, it's a very like decision-intensive game. Like every character has, you know, not only you're deciding whether or not you're going to reserve a character. Every character has multiple actions, multiple abilities. 
you have multiple points of interest on the board at every given time. So you're making lots of small decisions yeah. in every activation. It can lead to some uh, analysis paralysis and some long games, which uh, leads us into something else you wanted to talk about was uh, how to deal with that and how we can, as a community, respond to tournament play and time limits and such. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I, think I do want to tell a story, and I'll, I'll do this carefully because it... I, like this is really in my head. This is a story with no villains, and um, but but it involves like slow play, which is something you know gamers get get very reactive about. But I think our reactivity to it is because of how how much it can impact a game, and I think that's that's the reason I have a conversation. So with that preamble, let let me go ahead and say like my my first round of this event. We're playing the round. Uh, it's taking a while. Struggle one lasts about seventy of the ninety minutes. Uh, I wind up winning it. My opponent kind of, you know, relaxes back and says, well, that's going to be the game then, you know, kind of assuming like, you, you know, you've got struggle one. So, you know, we, we can kind of pause here, get ready for our next matches. And I kind of shrug and I say, you know, 20 minutes are left. We can probably play through one, if not both of the other struggles. It, it's up to you if you want to stop here or not. And he, he rallies. We keep going. We get through struggle two, which he wins. And we're in the struggle three. And we, we get to a point where there's five minutes left on the clock. And uh, on the board, there's basically a tie, right? Like at the end of his activation, the thing's going to go back to the middle on momentum. We are equally wounded. He really doesn't have a good target to wound. Uh, and he starts his activation. He's kind of humming and hawing. Uh, and I get anxious because I'm thinking, like, uh, it, momentum's near the center. If, if it comes back to me, I'm probably going to be able to pull it over just by walking Grievous over if he, if he, if I get him or the Shatterpoint. Like, my opponent seems to be in an analysis paralysis. And after a few moments, I kind of say to him, like, okay, you need to roll a blue die, right? That's the first thing that happens. We, we get the priority down. Yeah. Uh, so he does that. He, you know, he puts it there. Okay, hmm. Uh, I think he may have flipped up his Shatterpoint or he's got Dooku and he's starting to think like, okay, well, I'm going to go with Dooku. Like what, uh, what, what, do, where do I move my Magna Guards, which were his only secondary droids? And they're not going to impact the map. And so after a moment, I kind of prompt him. I say, I really feel like we can get through a couple activations here. And he kind of goes, okay. And, and I realize like either by decision or, analysis paralysis he, he's gonna lock in on every decision point through this activation and so i start prompting him the to is kind of sitting there uh we get through the activation where dooku kind of comes and attacks grievous he doesn't wound him it, it was not a likely thing to have happen and he kind of says well i guess we have a draw then and i kind of sigh and i flip my card over and i say i really wish we'd had at least another activation because here's grievous if he had just walked over here, here's the struggle. And I really feel like that activation took a little too long. And my opponent says, yeah, I was stalling because I didn't want you to get to activate again. And the TO kind of looks at him and says, there were 10 seconds left when he flipped his card over. So, so I kind of look at both of them and say, I really don't know what to do here. Uh, I, I think that's slow play. And I realize I don't have any idea if that's even a term in the tournament doc, right? So I, I look it up later. It's not, right? The, there are rules about, or there's recommendations about how long event rounds should be, but nothing about time. Now, I, I think every player can intuit that, that you should play more quickly than the absolute extreme, which would be like whoever acts second goes forward, 
like prepares to claim two points and then doesn't hand activation back for 90 minutes and then says, well, I've won because I, you know, get this struggle on the tiebreak of having more momentum, right? Like that's obviously not a game of Shatterpoint. Uh, but when you're down to the last activations, it, it's tricky, right? And again, if, if you're playing, you know, about 14 activations on a side, you know, if, if we round that to 15, these are about like three minute, maybe four minute activations per each uh, in a 90 minute yeah. game, right? Um, and, and some of them are going to take longer. You know, it makes sense that some of the last ones would need a little more thought. But like, how do you evaluate and adjudicate that? Especially when somebody doesn't like come out and say like, yes, I was intentionally stalling to get the clock to run out on this particular activation, right? So I, I do want to sort of point to this and, because in my opponent's mind, he sort of said, like he, he kind of after the game said, well, you know, we're not using chess clocks. And if I let you have it back, you're going to win. And like time is a common resource here. Like I, I really think in his mind, he, he was correctly playing the situation the way that like a football team will, will kneel a ball to cause the game clock to go down. Right. Like th yeah. things stay safe. You don't risk a turnover. Um, and in my mm -hmm. mind, that's like a, a sort of violation of an ethos that we keep playing activations, you know, without rushing ourselves, but but certainly without stalling. So, I, you know, like I, I think communities need to figure out what their ethos are around that. Um, and then I think eventually, you know, for really competitive events, we probably will expect something like a chess clock. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I've, th there's different ways to do a chess clock. Y you can do a death clock where each person gets half the time. Uh, you can do a death clock where each person gets like 60% of the time, which, which will not add up to a round. But if one player takes, you know, an abundant over proportionment of it, they, they will uh, lose the game on, on a time technicality. Um, or you can have a clock system. What we do in Malifaux is there's a clock system where once you're out of time, uh, you start with even amounts. But once you're out, you no longer activate. You can still score, but you don't activate. In, in Malifaux, that's likelier to lead to a, a victory still than I think it is in Shatterpoint, where once you get knocked away from points, you, you just will not score them ever again. Um, but, but I think there are some opportunities to think about this down the road. I think it's an interesting point to know that the way the tiebreaker system is set up in Shatterpoint, you 100% always want to be going last because the tiebreaker that wins you the is that how the tiebreakers are written are you win the struggle if you control more objectives, not if you have more momentum or anything else. Um, in their in their premier document, which really leads itself to be like if you're going last, like there's oftentimes you can be ahead in the struggle and. Uh, you, you, when you're at the end of your opponent's turn, they have more objectives. They've scored, they have two of them. Um, which really gives this quandary of like, there's the rules incentivize you wanting to go last. And so there's an incentive, more incentive than even normal to slow play. As you said, that's a thing in gaming that is kind of, we have this ethos where, where we don't do that. It's a little bit, we seem to expect that it's different from a football game that we, you know, we've set these other rules as a community, but there's not something specific in the premier rules about slow play. It's a really rough thing, right? Like, and, and it's, yeah. it, it's really hard to figure out like an, a corrective because you can sort of have a TO call and say one more activation each seven minutes from the end or something. Right. Um, but but then you you know if you're timing the game maybe you're gaming for that seven minute switch right like um, I I do think when you add a layer of abstraction it makes it a little hard 
harder to power game it and like you know take on that cognitive load along with everything else you're trying to do yeah but yeah and and i do think the tie breaks are a little absolute right the the on the one hand that really rewards you for just finishing the game right like if you if you don't want to worry yeah. about tie breaks finish the game um yeah but um you know, it, it's a game where they're releasing plenty of content. You don't want people to feel like they can't bring something they're not like super polished with to a formal event. Um, yeah, just lots of competing interests, right? Yeah, I've found so I was um, the only game that I've played with timers as MCP, and that's only been at larger events, so like LVO and such. We've had just a, the straight, each player gets half the time. And I really liked the timer for these organized play events, these higher events. They've, they let kind of this security blanket of, hey, we've agreed on how to use time. Therefore, because we have this agreement, I don't have to, whatever you do with your time is within your bounds. You know, like we've set up these agreements. And kind of where the question is tricky is, we don't have those agreements set up yet. It's not explicitly said in our rule documents, whether we use timers or not, or kind of what this particular community is going to decide. And I think um, that there's, as you said, there's a lot of different options. And uh, please let us know in the Slack what you guys think the best uh, ideas are, whether you're like, we should, whether we should have clocks or not at large formal events, or you guys have other ideas. Um, love to hear all these mm-hmm. thoughts about Timers. I've had largely positive experiences with timers. I think they're good for the game. I think they're good for giving that sense of fair play. But uh, I understand that they can be intimidating to people too, especially newer players just coming into miniature gaming, coming into tournaments. That uh, there's this real kind of like, hey, I'm brand new. I I don't know miniature games, let alone just the new models. Right. You know. I, that it can be kind of scary. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we having done this in the last year or two with Malifaux, this is a really familiar constellation of like tensions and counter arguments. And, and I do actually think clocks uh, work really well in response to almost all of them. Yeah. A- and part of it, I, I, I want to really underline one of the things you said, which is it, it shifts the agency for how time is used into a structure that's already been agreed on. Because the hardest moment to figure out whether slow play has happened is like right as it's happening in a vacuum, right? Because a TO, like yeah. if you say to a TO, I think this person has slow played their last two activations, the TO comes over, they can watch the game, you know, here, here forward, but they, they have no idea what just happened. Um, and short of somebody saying like, yes, I was stalling, like you really don't know that it happened right like somebody can even say like i'm sorry i I got analysis paralysis and like even if you're totally confident that did not happen what can you do right uh you can track a pattern over time but it can you know if it if it's a big game in a given event like that's that um but i do think for the other kinds of things that you brought up like you know new players well any new player jumping into a game like Shatterpoint or Malifaux or even something like Warhammer, like there's a learning curve. And if you expect to put somebody on like the most competitive terms of, of gaming on their first day into the shop, like you're already not onboarding that player well, right? Like that, that community yep. has not prioritized new player experience. 
So I, I think yeah. that that is something where like the use case just doesn't come up, right? Like the, the community that's going to hit that is not is has other problems. I, I think the other the other thing people often will bring up is like, well, wait a minute, there's alternating abilities and reactions, and you know, uh, choosing like looking at expertise charts in Shatterpoint, right? Uh, and I like in Malifaux, what we've done with that is we just say who, whoever is thinking, the player can shift the clock to them. Right. If you say, let me look at my expertise chart and it takes more than a second or two, you just say like, OK, I'll give you the clock for that. Right. Um, and, and like on the one hand, that can seem a little aggressive. Right. Like, oh, this guy's like giving me the clock. I just had to look at my chart. Like I only needed four seconds. And on second three, he flipped it like. But on the other hand, like that is way less aggressive than calling a TO and saying like, hey, the last three times this guy's looked at his expertise chart, it's taken him 10 seconds. You know, like yeah. the, the clock is a way more neutral construct than any other corrective that you might have. The other thing clocks bring is um, a lot of agency when you want to take some time, right? Like, yep. like if I'm, if I'm going to activate Dooku and, and think about moving multiple units, you know, Magna Guard's going to advance towards me. I'm going to dash somebody. I want to reposition. Like, I can stop and think for two minutes. And my opponent knows that those two minutes are entirely my side of the time shared resource for the round. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, th those are all positives, right? Like, there are ways to think about it. Um you know, I think negatives, like you can forget to hit it. Like you play a whole activation on somebody else's clock. That's a big deal in Shatterpoint. Yeah. But it, like it, it definitely solves the, like it, it is a, it is a construct that absolutely gives a, gives a framework that, that people have fewer bad feelings about than, you know, I, I think in the game I played, both of us sort of felt like we had we had we had played fairly and correctly, and we both sort of felt like the the game should have been evaluated the way that we evaluated it. And what we actually did was we rolled five dice, like start of start of game style, to just see which which outcome we were going to treat as having happened, right? Whether whether the clock did come yeah. back to me or whether we ended on a true tie. Um, and I, I happened to win that roll off and like went on, right? But like there are like I, I still don't think even that like give it over to the force act like helped dissolve all the bad feelings in the room. Uh, and it would have just yeah. been better if we knew on the front end what we were getting into. I, another note I wanted to make about time in a game that doesn't use player clocks that it works in, at least in my experience, it works in is in Magic the Gathering. I've gone through judge program for that, at least the, the rule zero judge program. I mean, the level zero judge program. And then they have their L1s, L2s, L3s. They have like this whole structure where they train their judges. And I think part of the reason why it works so well in that particular tournament setting is because it's putting a lot of the onus on the judges. That you've had judges who have like gone through like whole like training modules about what is slow play? How do I respond to slow play? So when you have... If you don't have timers, I do think it puts a lot of pressure on the tournament organizer to be the the arbitrator between everything. And a lot of our our POs, our judges for Shatterpoint, aren't going to be putting in hours into training modules for this. You know? Yeah. And I think that that timers in some way alleviate some of the stress from our organizers. They're just saying, like, here's this neutral machine that does this judge work for us. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think it's worth remembering, like, Shatterpoint, like, is built on the foundation of a, a fairly simple rule set for a competitive skirmish game and an incredibly popular IP, right? Like, th- this is a game that's going to bring a lot of people in who are competitive players and are excited for the chance to play Star Wars this time. And it's going to bring a lot of people who, like, haven't spent months in tournament settings, like, going through these kind of conversations already. Um, so the more that you can frame out, like, it just depends on the event you want to have, right? Like, if it's casual night for a yeah. lot of people, it, it, you know, slow play doesn't really matter, right? Like, whoever wins the event, if yep. there's no stakes, who cares? Um, when you get a couple of people who are a little more sweaty, and I'll, I'll admit this is me, right? Like, I, I, for, for me, part of my love of gaming is, like, testing my metal, right? Like, I want to see, can I do it? Like, can I can I yeah. hit the podium, right? Having having a, a an event structure that's got some firmness to it, it helps me feel like I'm really checking that, right? Like, I really get to have the experience I'm trying to get out of the game. You know, I, I think AMG's done a great job with the core rules of building something that is both crunchy and um complex enough to enjoy strategic planning but also straightforward enough that you can go chuck dice at each other and enjoy like watching star wars guys get you know back and forth um on objectives uh i I think now it's our turn as players to sort of find the tournament structure that is both friendly enough to to what i hope really are going to be some of the biggest and in terms of who games most diverse communities in in wargaming but also like have some structural integrity for people who want to chase a podium. Yeah. No, I think that those are some great questions that we have as a community have the wonderful opportunity to answer, to make it inclusive and fair. And I'm excited to see what the community does. I think there's a lot of room for having different kinds of structures at different levels, like your local leagues, you know, you're showing up to play at the shop, they run their league, it's casual, no need for timers there. But if you have a big event, Perhaps consider putting them in. I Well, I very much appreciate these thoughts, Ben. It's been great chatting with you. And thanks for listening. Please come join our Slack. Let us know what you think about Premiere Play, how we think about what you think about uh, the thoughts of winning struggles two and three, about timers. We want to hear it all. We love hearing your uh, comments, your critiques, your praise. We, we, we love it all. Uh, we appreciate having you on, Ben. And thanks, everyone. Uh, for for listening.